Ah, it's too easy to mess with my mind, guys. <laughs> by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. You're fantastic at coding, but do you have an action plan to take it to the next level? The upcoming book, Next Level Freelance, will help you optimize your freelance business for happiness. The book is packed with actionable steps to make more money, case studies, tips to find more clients, and exercises for you to establish your desired lifestyle. Extras include nine interviews with freelancers who make great money while enjoying great work-life balance, videos on strategies to find quality subcontractors, and videos on making more free time by outsourcing your daily tasks. Check it out today, nextlevelfreelance.com. This episode is sponsored by Planscope. Planscope is a project management and collaboration app built for freelancers and the way they work with clients. It makes it easy to price out new estimates, and once you're underway, help answer the question, will this get done on time and under budget? I've been using Planscope to do my estimates and manage my projects, and I really, really like it. It makes it really easy to keep things in in order and understand when things will get done. You can go check it out at planscope.io. Here's the drum wall. <laughs> Welcome to the Freelancer Show episode 82. Today we have uh, Eric Davis. Hello, I believe my name's Eric. <laughs> Reuven Lerner. Oh, I guess we don't have Reuven Lerner now. Uh, and I'm Curtis McHale. We're going to talk about questions today. We went into the user voice and started grabbing some of the questions. So, Eric, why don't you lead us off with the first one? Okay, so some of these are going to be kind of quick. First one is find a first paying gig with only HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and a general purpose BS degree. So I guess uh, the person who ta- who's asking this, you know, they might have a general purpose BA degree or BS degree, and it's like, you know, HTML, CSS, JavaScript front end stuff, and they're trying to get their first paying gig. So what advice would you have for them? Well, I think they have to start writing or blogging, right? Get their name out there, c- contribute an open source project so that some people actually know them. Um, probably actually one of the good first things to do would be to read the book we talked about last week, Book uh, book Yourself Solid, right? Yeah, yeah, that one and maybe get clients now. I mean, because to be honest, like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, like, you know, any, actually any kind of technology, if you're... If that's the only thing you're bringing to the table for a client, there's not really any reason for them to work with you or someone overseas or, you know, someone who's still in college. That's maybe, you know, half the cost of you. So you kind of have to have something that's going to differentiate you from, you know, all these other people in the market. Yeah. Well, that might, that might be something as simple as even just knowing the person who's running the business who's interested in having your help and knowing the business well enough to be able to help them with their specific problems. You know, having the software as we've often Having the software skills, as we've often said, isn't quite enough. You also have to be able to actually solve their problems. And so if you can go in and say, well, I know your business, and I know how to make some improvements here on the technology side, uh, that's a good way to sort of uh, work yourself up and improve your technology skills, as well as your consulting skills, for that matter. Right. Yeah. So, you, I mean, you can approach it, like, from many angles. You can, you know, niche into the technology and say, like, you know, I'm the go-to guy for Knockout JS. Like, I know Knockout JS like the back of my hand. Or you could say, you know, I know how to get or how to, you know, improve uh, martial arts studios. Like, the, you know, those have those are businesses. They need customers. I know how to make their websites be better. And you know, kind of niche it onto like the industry side. So there, there's a lot you can do, but you have to kind of have something to stand for. Like, you have to be known as the go-to person for X. Yeah, I think what I did when I first started is I just started emailing all the local 
like all the local businesses and I probably didn't have a lot of value to provide. They weren't necessarily high paying clients, but it got some money in the door and gave me some more experience to keep building on and specializing with. Yeah. And I, I kind of did something similar. Like I, my first client was my past employer and then I, you know, hit Craigslist. I hit a lot of the kind of the freelance job boards, all that stuff. And basically did whatever I could. Um, I had one lead that actually wanted me to write some kind of FTP client in PHP, which was completely like not something I was good at. And so, you know, I did whatever I could. And then once I figured out, like, I really need to specialize, um, that's when things started to really turn around. So you can probably get your first, mm, I don't know, maybe half a dozen paying gigs, just being kind of, you know, generic, not really any specialization. But if you want to keep at it long term and you want to have consistent results, you need to, you need to specialize or have something to kind of, you know, hang your hat on. Let me just add one one point here as well. Um, the Persesky question said they had a general purpose BS degree, and yeah, it's always nice to have a computer science degree or some sort of degree, sort of in the direction of what you're trying to consult in. But that's a nice to have. It doesn't necessarily mean there are plenty of people out there with computer science degrees who are awful programmers or even excellent programmers who are terrible consultants. And there are other people, including you know people on this show, who don't have CS degrees and do an excellent job and have a totally successful career. So it might take a little bit of time to sort of convince others that you have the knowledge necessary. But once you've convinced them, then it, it should just keep coming. The work should keep coming and you should feel satisfied with that. Okay, so the next question, um, kind of a segue from the last one, is the title is Keeping Your Employer as a Client. Um, some tips and discussion for how to tactfully quit a full-time job to go freelance but keep your current employer as a client. Ooh, <laughs> have you guys done that? I've never done that successfully. <laughs> I've had uh, past employers want to contract with me, but then when they found out what the rate was as a contractor, they said, there's no way we can afford that, which is true because I mean, they were paying me like just barely above $30,000 a year for like full-time web development and e-commerce and everything. So, I mean, okay. I sort of had that, but they, they, they offered like when I was going to move, as I said in the, uh, like, you know, our backgrounds show a few weeks ago, you know, I said I was going to be leaving and they offered for me to consulting. But I do remember when I worked at HP, there were a bunch of people who had been, who had quit and come back as consultants and people were very jealous. They were like, Oh, those people are making twice or three times their previous salary without, understanding the economics of freelancing yeah and like i said it's my first client was actually my employer and it it worked like that because they were a small software company and didn't have anyone working remotely so when i moved out of state they still needed some stuff done and so i did it you know freelancing as a consultant and for that i mean it, it was tactful because i like i really tried to get everything done for them everything documented but i was in so many different roles at the company with it being a small company there just wasn't enough time to document everything. And so after I finished there, they came back to me like, Hey, you know, we, we need some, we need some more documentation on this, on this subject, or we need you to write some code to automate something that only you actually know how to do. And so I, you know, freelance for them. My rate was like way too low, but you know, it was, it was still a bit higher than my salary. But the thing is they weren't paying me for, you know, 40 hour a week. They're just paying for like, I think like maybe a five or 10 hour week. And so they got what they needed. I got kind of a little bit of a bootstrap cash fund and, you know, everyone was happy. So I think the thing is, is don't like, don't threaten that you're going th freelance and you have to, you know, you know, client or employer, you need to start paying me three times as much because I'm freelance. You kind of got to work with them and figure out what they need and kind of, you know, use them as like, you know, your first client and kind of get into the, 
the freelancer client relationship and not the employee employer relationship. Yeah, and friend mm-hmm. who went remote and freelance by simply flying from Calgary to BC and not showing up on Monday and starting to work <laughs> remote. <laughs> I, I thought that was pretty bold, but he's had a job for four or five months still. So yeah, if if you're in a position of you know power of that sort, you know if you've got incredible job security because you're basically you basically have amazing knowledge and or you're an amazing employee, you can probably negotiate something more easily. But you don't want to threaten them or I don't know not showing up or being in another city seems a little extreme. But I mean, I, I can imagine if you have a good relationship with your employer, uh, then you could probably go to them and say, listen, I really enjoy working with you. I want to continue working with you, but I want to specialize in the things that are really of interest to me and that I think you're getting the greatest value out of. Uh, maybe we can work out some sort of deal where instead of working for you 40 hours a week, I'll work for you 20 hours a week just doing those specific things that are most worthwhile. And that'll allow me, you know, it'll be sort of good for both of us. And again, if you have a good relationship with them, that might work out well. Yeah. And that's kind of something I did is when I was an employee, I was doing system administration, um, kind of the webmaster, um, you know, front and back end web development, desktop development, and general, like basically, like, you know, tier three or whatever support. And, you know, I was doing all those things. And then when I went freelance, I basically said, look, I'm only doing, you know, the Rails web development. Like, I'm not going to do your desktop stuff. I'm not going to do um, the system administration stuff, all that. And so, that's how it went from like, you know, 40 hours a week down to like five or 10, because it's just the, the few skills that they had no one else in house yet to kind of take over. Okay. So the next question, um, this is from Chuck, actually. I think we've heard about him on the show before. Uh, it's about <laughs> scheduling work. If you have to juggle multiple clients, uh, or when you have multiple clients, how do you juggle them? Or is there another way to kind of manage, you know, scheduling projects that are, I guess, I guess are running concurrently at the same time? I just don't typically book projects at the same time. Uh, I bill weekly, and so I book you in for the set number of weeks, and I can take a new project when those weeks are up. That's how I dealt with it. I had nothing but trouble when I tried to run concurrent projects because it was, I don't know, maybe I'm just terrible at it, and that doesn't work for me. But I could never accurately estimate when the end date was, and I'd have way many, way too many things overlapping and be super not happy. I've been totally the opposite. Uh, I think... I can't remember ever having only one project on which I was working at a time. So when I hear about weekly billing, I think, wow, that's great, except for the fact that in any given week, I'm probably working on two or three different things, you know, probably teaching a course and working for two different clients. And so juggling time can be a bit of a challenge. And it's true that, uh, you know, I sometimes have to work late into the middle of the night, but I, I mean, that's the sort of personal choice. I think that's not necessarily, uh, it doesn't have to be part of the, uh, the taking multiple clients, but it does require a fair amount of discipline in terms of scheduling. What I started doing about two years ago was toward the end of the month, if I saw that I had a relatively open month coming up, about a week before the end of the month, I would contact all my clients and say, let's schedule time for next month. And that would not only allow me to lock them in and, and know that my schedule was full and that I have a fully billable schedule, but it also gave them uh, notice that I'm not available infinitely. And so if you want to have time with me, you'd better lock that in now. Uh, and it actually worked really, really well, and I've continued to do that. The only backfiring part of that is that I'm now typically scheduled out mostly about a month or two in advance. So I just had a client call me yesterday and say, oh, we'd really like to meet with you. And I do have some holes in my next week or two to meet with them, and that's great. When I told them that I'm often booked a month or two in advance, they got a little nervous. 
because they said, well, what if we need you for an emergency? I said, well, so far that's worked out okay with all my clients, but that's something they have to keep in mind and that I have to keep in mind as well. Yeah, that's, I've actually, I do what Curtis was talking about, but I've done what you're talking about where, you know, I basically just slot people in and book them out. And I I think at one time I had like, I think a six month waiting list just because some contracts were really long. And yeah, like I, I know I lost a lot of a lot of actual projects because I couldn't work on them. But you know, you're gonna lose them anyways. I've written about this, and I think it's also in my book. But I kind of see there's two ways of scheduling that could work. The first one is basically like part time all the time, which is where you know, say you have three or four projects, you basically work on them all at the same time. Like maybe Mondays project one, Tuesdays project two, that sort of thing. And you're, you know, you're basically like time slicing yourself and like making sure each project is getting a little bit of your attention every either every day or every week. I recommend every week just because it's hard to, you know, jump between four things at once. Um, and that can work and that's good for, you know, if there's emergencies or there's you want to pick up a new project and don't want to, you know, force them to wait a couple months. The second way is um, basically I call it week on, week off, but you can do it however you want. Um, it's basically like Curtis has every client gets like a week of dedicated time. And so like this week, I might be working for client A, next week is client B, the week after that is client C. And then, you know, maybe next month, whatever rotates around. And the nice thing is you can really, really focus and get a like, you know, real, like, I don't know, maybe 50% productivity gains just because you can stay in one client's area and you don't have to worry about like, you know, switching projects or changing web servers or any of that stuff. And that's actually what I've used for the past maybe two years, uh, at least a year, if not two years. Um, and that's great because it just makes everything so simple. And most of the time, emergencies, you can either fit in or you can kind of push off to like a later week. Like, oh, sorry, I, you know, your server's like limping along. It'll be fine. We can deal with that next Monday. Yeah, I really, I really like what you guys are saying in terms of scheduling ideas. I think it's hard for me to do that because of all the courses that just sort of schedule, scattered around. But definitely having the part-time all the time has definitely been my favorite way to do it for a variety of reasons. And so when I go to new clients, I say to them, look, my preference is to do it one day a week, two days a week, just sort of moving forward on that front. But I should try the week thing at some point. Sounds like it might might be useful. Yeah, and you can mix them too. Um, you know, if you... Like, I recommend a lot of freelancers go and try to get long-term contracts. And basically a big part of that is you do like a trial project up front to make sure like you and the client are compatible. And so what I think would work the best is say in a month, you have five weeks, you know, use four of those weeks for your long-term clients and each one, you know, gets a solid week and then use that fifth week kind of as like, if you're doing a trial project for a client, like say you're going to spike on something, you know, put in three or four full days of work. And then that way you can kind of keep that one week free. And so as people come in, you can do the trial, see if you want to work with them. If you do, then you can slot them into the other slots as a long-term contract or not. And the other nice thing about the week on week off is if you want to take a vacation, you just, you know, book a client of yourself taking a vacation and you just go for a week. Don't have to worry about anything. Right. How, how, I'm curious how your clients reacted to the week on week off. Like, do they feel like you were abandoning them for the weeks when you were not available? Um, it, when I it do depends. weekly stuff, I still do. Like, you know, if a client has an emergency, I'll still do that. I tell every client booking in, like, there's some business admin. And a week does not include Fridays. And so if I have to, you know, help a client with a client with a fully crashed server, then I'm working for you like that Friday morning to do yeah. the extra work and to catch up. Or I'm working for that client on the Friday. 
And that's what I would do. Like, I mean, if it's like, you know, our server is crashed, our website's down, you know, I, I would contact switch over to that client, even in the middle of the week to get See them you next week. <laughs> well, yeah, I, you know, just get them patched on so that they can kind of continue business and then go back to the original one and, you know, make it up to the original client, however you can. Um, some, sometimes when it's like an emergency, but not a critical emergency, you know, like we need to get this resolved, but it's not stopping business functions. I, I try to delay that a little bit or, you know, that might, depending on what it is, that might be the one time when I'll work like a night or a weekend just to kind of get that taken care of. And sometimes I'll take that time out of that client's week. So instead of them having, you know, five days next week, they would only get four days and I would take, you know, the Monday or the Friday off to kind of compensate myself. Mm -hmm. And a week also moves it to value based, right? Like on Monday, we decide we're going to do A, B, and C. And as long as A, B, and C are done by the end of the week, we hit our goals. It's not necessarily that that I put in a certain set of hours. So if I say, hey, I'm going to take this morning and work for this other client for something because they have this emergency, as long as you can get A, B, and C done, we're good to go still. That, That to me is in many ways the most convincing argument for working in that way. Yeah, but my... Most of my clients liked it. I had a few that actually loved the week stuff because especially on smaller contracts, like if the client has to like keep their eyes open for an email from you every now and then or like the entire month, like, oh, when's Eric going to work on this? That kind of, you know, it takes a bit of energy from them. But if they know second week of the month, Eric's going to be on full time. I need to clear my calendar for that week, but I have the rest of the month to just ignore anything Eric says. Um, it helps them plan their stuff. And like Curtis says, I actually do maybe a third or maybe a quarter of Monday is kind of planning, like, what do we want to get done this week? And then Friday is kind of the review of what got done. What can we actually launch to the site? What do we want to hold off till next month or next week? And so it really puts a lot of structure around doing kind of agile or incremental stuff without it being too much of a management burden. The other great thing I love is when you're tied into that communication. Like I was in IRC for the last three weeks with one of with my client for three weeks, and I could just leave that open all the time and answer their stuff and basically ignore email because I knew it wasn't going to email me, right? So I could just deal with the email once a day quickly, and nothing that was current client stuff was coming up. Yeah, and that's what you get from you know the focus on the context switching. Like I'll, I'll set up email rules to just filter a whole bunch of other stuff away and keep the, my inbox for whatever client I'm working on. Right. It, it does seem to me that uh, how easily you can context switch also seems to be a personal thing. Like I had someone working for me about two years ago and he was great and everything was wonderful. But he asked me specifically if he can work on one project at a time as opposed to like two or three being uh, dealing with different things. Because he said he just found it way, way, way easier to concentrate on one thing rather than the many things that I was doing. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing that I can do, or whether I do it well or poorly, I'm not sure, but I've just been doing it for so long that I took it for granted he could too. I don't I don't think it's like, you know, different people are better at it. I think it's different people are better at deceiving themselves about how good they are at multitasking. <laughs> I am perfectly willing to admit that I'm deceiving myself. So for all you potential clients out there. <laughs> Anything else you guys have on scheduling when you have multiple com- multiple clients at once? Not really. I mean, I, I, although, I mean, I experienced even when I was going to people twice a week, similar to what you were saying in terms of they knew I was coming. Those days were set in stone. And so they knew to get ready and prep themselves because it, it was worth it to them and it was worth it for me as well. Okay. So the next question, what is the difference between consulting, contracting and freelancing? <laughs> Semantics? I, it could be nothing and it could be a lot. 
I would say, I mean, I don't think the term's really necessarily right. I think it's mostly semantics, but I mean, it's sort of like what you decide to do with it. I think consultants imply that you are providing more value, right? Like freelancer, coming in as a freelancer, at least in my mind, often means you're coming in, we'll say code monkey or just pushing the pixels around to do what they'd like you to do, whereas a consultant is coming in to provide business value. Right, a freelancer or even a contractor to some degree, exactly. The idea is, well, we don't have any full-time employees to do this, so we'll have someone come in and fill their shoes instead on a contract basis. And certainly that's what I've done for many years as a consultant. But I've also done other things and higher level things and more interesting things as a consultant that I don't think they would typically hire a freelancer for. So I've actually thought about this a lot. I've talked with people. I have pretty clear boundaries for this. And there's actually two sides of it. So the side that how you kind of project yourself to your client, they mean different things. But the side how you project yourself to like your peers, like other people, like other consultants or other freelancers, they're very similar. Then it's just kind of a, a quicker label um, than anything. But when you go to a client, the way I look at it is you're basically selling advice and implementation. And so if you're selling almost all exclusively advice, you're going to be a consultant. You're consulting them. You're telling them what they need to do. Um, if you're selling just implementation where the client knows what they're doing, but they need someone to actually just do the work, that's a contractor. You know, that's someone who comes and it's basically a button seat, you know, making designs, writing code, whatever. Um, the freelancer I see kind of straddling the two where you give some advice and then you actually go and implement that advice. And it's it's a lot of gray area, a lot of fuzziness, because some consultants will give advice and then they'll do the implementation too. Um, but this is how I like to look at it. And so if I ever, you know, go to a client, I kind of, if I'm going to them and I want to do the implementation, I present myself as a, free, a freelancer. If I'm going to them and just want to give them advice and, you know, tell them what they need to have their employees do, I uh, present myself as a consultant. Yeah, it's funny. I uh, On several occasions, I don't know, in the last few years, there have been people who, when they hear what I do, they say, oh, so you also do the implementation. You're not just a consultant. And I think they had similar definitions to what you just said, Eric, where you know they were like, oh, well, if you're consulting, then you're just giving advice. You're not necessarily sitting and doing the, doing the coding. But I was just, I guess it was earlier today, I got email from someone who said, well, you know, we would love to have, our company would love to have you work with us, but you're way too expensive. How do you manage to get those really high rates for doing web programming? And I run him back. I said, look, first of all, like I'm running a business and I have overhead and on and on. But secondly, if you are equating what I'm doing with what your typical web developer is doing, then um, you're, you're thinking about me in the wrong way and you're not seeing the value that I can provide. And hope, hopefully he got the message. Hopefully I can even work with him at some point. But I think there's a general feeling that that's often what consultants are doing. Yeah, well, there's that old story. I, I don't remember the exact thing, so I'm going to butcher it, but it's the idea of, you know, factories having problems, you know, stuff's just not being manufactured correctly. They track it down to it's a machine. It's just malfunctioning. They call someone in to fix it. The guy spends 10 minutes looking at the machine, pulls out a hammer, smacks the machine, gives them a bill for $2,000. The factory owner gets mad. It's like, you were only here for 10 minutes. How, how can you bill for $2,000? He's like, well, I'm billing you $1,999 for knowing what to hit, and then the one dollar right. actually swinging the hammer. Um, <laughs> and I mean, a lot. There's actually I've read a lot of consulting books, and they split up the implementation too. And it's a common thing to split the actual, you know, discovery advice part of it from implementation. Um, I just like to split it up into kind of different job titles, just to kind of 
convey how I'm coming into this project. Right. Okay, so next question. Uh, well, it's a couple questions. It's about tracking and billing time. What tools do you use to track time? How do you invoice? Is there a right, best, or wrong way to do it? I use Ronin app as my tool of choice at this point. It seems to have the least things I dislike. I'm not sure that I'm ever going to find a tool that I just, everything is perfect and it all, you know, sun is shining and birds fly through my office because that'd be actually kind of weird, birds in my office. But, <laughs> well, it would be a bird chirping behind me. That wouldn't be good for a podcast even. But it has the most, or it solves the most pain points for me, which for me were online billing, um, which I my old system didn't have a way to let the client pay online automatically without me taking more interaction with PayPal to send the invoice. Um, and I wanted to track my time on flat rate stuff so I could work out my effective hourly rate, but I didn't ever want to show the client the time because I want it to be results-based from them. So that it solved those problems. Um, I'm actually going to look at a couple other options coming into the next year. And to track my time, it has just a built-in timer, which is okay. It works. Yeah, so I tried or I looked into a bunch of different time tracking and invoicing programs a few years ago. And one of the most important things that I had to deal with was multiple currencies. I need to be able to invoice people, track time, have rates, and invoice people in shekels, dollars, and euros. And there were a number of places, number of online services that would allow me to uh, do things in those various currencies, but would automatically convert the currency according to a formula that they had and on dates that they wanted. And that really was not, not the sort of thing that I wanted. So in the end, I went with Harvest. And Harvest, I really think, is wonderful in terms of interface, in terms of billing, in terms of all this stuff. But it turns out that it's illegal for me to, in Israel, for my business to invoice with a non-government approved program. So uh, after a little, you know, looking around and doing things by hand and on uh, sort of official notepads that the government, uh, okay, okay. I actually went within a local Israeli service for my invoicing. So I still track hours with Harvest, but I invoice with uh, something called uh, Account Book. Yes, it's an English name, but it's all in Hebrew. I'll put it in the show notes for the few people in Israel who might be interested in looking at it. Um, but uh, I've been pretty, actually, very happy with them so far. It's been a nice, pleasant change from the uh, you know, writing things out by hand. I looked at Harvest probably two years ago. I did a, like a multi-thousand word review of Harvest. And the big thing for me is it didn't offer a really nice way for me to bill flat rate, track my hours and not show the client the hours. It like, I just had to basically mess it up so I could never track what my effective hourly rate was. I understand that that is fixed now, but that was my biggest issue with Harvest. Other than that, it was awesome. And the tools I use, uh, I use Chili Project, um, you know, used to be Redmine. I've used that the entire time I've been freelancing and I'm, if you don't know already, I'm meticulous with my time tracking. So I actually have all my time tracked to when I originally started. And I also track, you know, I track billable stuff, but I track non-billable stuff and also internal. Like I, I can tell you how much time I spent in email, um, you know, 42 weeks ago. The nice thing is I, I use that to track all my time. And because of that, I've built a, uh, an open source plugin that can take that time and invoice it. And because I wrote the code for it, I actually, you know, was able to write the features for how I want to invoice. So some clients, you know, flat rate, I just put the flat rate on there, don't show the hours. Um, other clients that want, you know, the bill by the hour, I can show all that. And, you know, the nice thing about the way I'm doing it is you can also export stuff to Harvest or from Harvest or to FreshBooks, from FreshBooks, you know, any, any system you want. And so, you know, you can use the nice, you know, time tracker widget somewhere else, but actually run your invoices in this other system. Um, and it, it, 
it works good for me. I don't think it would work for everyone else because I have my own particularities, but that's basically, that's the system I've come to over the years and it's been pretty solid, I guess, the past four years since it's been done. So why do you track your internal time? One, it's to find out my actual hourly rate. So, you know, if I have a billable rate of, uh, say, $100 an hour, but I only work four out of the eight hours a day, my real actual hourly rate is $50 an hour. So I can see kind of like if I'm spending too much time on internal stuff or if I'm actually like figuring out, you know, I wrote this book in X hours, I made this much money, was it a good use of my time? Um, you know, that sort of thing. And it's also just a habit I got into and I can look back and get estimates. You know, like I estimated four hours, it took me eight hours to do this. Okay, so I need to kind of take that into account next time I do a similar task. I always have good intentions about that and never quite follow through on it. The uh, yeah. the question a- the question asks also is there a wrong way to do invoicing and uh, I would say the biggest lesson I've learned in terms of wrong way to do invoicing is to wait. Yeah. Sometimes I said, well, I haven't done that much work for them. I don't want to bother them with an hour of invoicing, so I'll wait. And then it just drags on for months, and then it's just really uncomfortable for everyone because they're like, really, you're invoicing me now for something I- you did six months ago? Uh, okay, and it just feels very awkward. Yeah, and or they can even get angry. <laughs> I only wait for one client uh, who I've had for a long time, and occasionally his invoices for like fifty bucks. We just bundle it into like a two month invoice. Uh, it's my only small client now because he's awesome to work for. But everyone else just gets billed. I'll do that today. I'll bill everyone that I did work for that was hourly um, on in or in September today. Yeah, that's the same thing I do. Like, you know, basically once the months ended, the next business day of the new month i invoice for everything that i haven't done unless like you know someone's prepaid or there's uh deposits or stuff like that sitting around but yeah like that's the wrong way of invoicing is not doing it the worst way of in or the next worst way of invoicing is just waiting and invoicing haphazardly i've heard of people that you know they'll wait like five and a half months and be like oh we got a bunch of time i need to you know, I need some money in my bank account. I'm going to make an invoice. And they like invoice on like the 13th of the month and it's not consistent. And when you're dealing with business clients, like that tends to kind of upset people. And especially if you're working with like, you know, accounts payable department, uh, they don't like that at all. No. And when I do weekly, I actually invoice on uh, Friday for the next coming up week. So I get paid for that before the week has actually started. Okay. So here's a kind of a tricky question. What do you do if you're going to run over budget? So, Basically, you know, you set your client's expectation that they're gonna, they're gonna get a certain feature or deliverable for X dollars and it's gonna be more than X. So how do you have that kind of painful conversation with them? Uh, is there ways to avoid it? That sort of thing. I think it depends on the circumstances. Is it going over budget because you're just taking a long time and didn't, I you know, assumed it was way easier? Then I think that's kind of on you. Is it going over because what they told you you were going to do is different or the API changed mid cycle, in which case that's kind of a cost of doing business for them. So I would approach it in two different ways. If it's my fault, then I guess I just have to suck it up. If it's their fault or something that neither of us could control, then it, I have to bill it to the client or we just stop when we hit the budget really. The, the worst thing you can do, this goes back to the, the billing question, I guess, is not say anything and just invoice them at the end of the month, pretending nothing has happened maybe you'll have a good enough relationship that they'll understand and they'll just keep it going. But almost certainly someone's going to get upset and you really want to deal with that in advance and call them and say, listen, I think this is going over budget. And then, yeah, there are different ways to deal with it. 
Um, and what Curtis just said, sometimes you might need to absorb some of the cost if it was your fault. And short-term absorption of some of the cost is probably really, really worthwhile for a long-term relationship with a client. But if things are going over budget, if you can see that happening, if you see that you're already used, uh, if you've used half or two-thirds of the budget, and you know it's going to take a lot more than what you originally expected, talk to them about it. And you can try to figure out together what to do and whether the budget needs to expand or the scope needs to contract or, or anything else. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of this comes to trust. Like, if you have a good level of trust with your client, you can kind of come to them and say, I screwed up on the estimate or you know, what some circumstance is happening and they'll have trust that, you know, you're, you just haven't been jerking their channel the entire time and be like, okay, well, let's cut features or, you know, give you more budget or whatever. But I, you gotta, you gotta tell them like before you get, before you run over. Um, I tend to, I have, you know, a project and, you know, there's like a project budget and then inside of that there's, I have tasks and each task has estimates and they range from, I don't know, maybe an hour to maybe like 20 hours. So, you know, they're, they're good size, but they're not too big. And typically if I notice that a task is kind of getting to like the 70% mark of the budget, but it doesn't feel like it's that far done. Um, I'll basically raise the flag of the client then and be like, Hey, this task, it's, you know, we still have budget. There's still work to do, but it kind of feels like it's going to be higher than it should be. And sometimes I'll even ask for authorization to go, you know, four or five hours over. Um, and I do that up front and I tell them like, you know, I might not need it. You know, I might just finish everything right away, but just to kind of make it so I don't have to stop work and basically, you know, we ran out of money. Um, I let my clients know about that ahead of time. And kind of the hope is on some other things, I'll be under budget enough. So it would, you know, it's all washed in the end, but just kind of raising that flag, my client early on and frequently kind of gets them used to that. I'm watching their money. I'm watching their budget and they know they can count on me about it. Yeah. When I'm working weekly too, like we decide we're going to do A, B and C. And so when we do it like a Wednesday check-in, if we only have A done, and B and C were still big features of the same size, then we know something's up and we can figure it out right then, right? And then typically on a project like that, we have a couple weeks to go, so then we can even readjust in a few weeks and decide to extend it an extra week even. Yeah, and one of my clients, oh no, I guess two. Yeah, two of my clients, I guess. Um, we we got into more of like almost a retainer where I gave them a fixed amount of hours each month and they just had this huge task list and it was prioritized, there's estimates, and so, you know, I might say, okay, I'm coming in based on the amount of time we have, I can knock off these five. And so for them, sometimes if an estimate goes too high, I still notify them and tell them that this individual one's going to take longer, but I might only get through like, say, three of the five tasks. And so then the next month, I would kind of work on the next ones. And the nice thing about that is all that, it, the only pain they have is like, okay, stuff takes longer and we're going to have to wait a little bit longer to get some things. And sometimes all they would have to do is just reorder, reprioritize stuff if they're actually needing something early. And it's there's not really any pain for them at all. Yeah, it, def it definitely comes down to, I mean, the key word is trust. Uh, I mean, I've got a client now for, I think it's about four or five years already. And when I and the programmer who works for me, when we estimate something, they know that we're really trying the best to save them money as well and keep the business going as well as possible. And when we're off and high, they, you know, if we, if we miss the, the, the estimate, they understand, but we're just as often below the estimate. And then of course they're thrilled and they're especially happy that we're not padding it just to take the money that we said we could take. Yeah. So, I mean, and you just, I guess you just gotta know your client, have trust with them, be open. And if you have to take some unbillable time, you have to, I mean, it's not, it's not a good thing. And 
if you do, you know, make it clear to a client that, you know, there's, you're working an extra five hours that you're not charging them for. So they understand that you kind of took that on yourself. But, um, you also have to look at the big picture. Like, is this a client, like, you know, you've been saying, like, is this someone you worked with for five years? You know, it might be worth, you know, losing a bit of money this week on it, um, just to keep them around. Or you can be really, you know, pig headed, hard nosed about it. Say, no, you got to pay for everything. We're going over budget and lose them. All right. So next question, uh, how do you structure ongoing support and maintenance contracts? Do you provide support after the main project's done? Uh, how do you manage it? Do you charge for like ad hoc time or is there like a retainer agreement? Well, Eric, you're probably the, <laughs> you know, the expert on this with long-term stuff. Yeah. I mean, like, like I said, I do a trial project, which is more prototype up front and then try to make the main development. If like, say it's a, you know, we're going to build an application and then maintain it over time. Um, I make sure to try to make the main development part be the long-term, you know, busy part. And then after that, I might do another contract at like, say, a reduced amount of hours. And this is where I've mentioned I've had clients where it's uh, kind of a bucket of time uh, each month. And so, you know, you'll get 10 hours. And then if there's a critical bug, I'll work on that. If there's not, we can work on some feature work or whatever. And so that's how I've done it. And that's worked really good. Uh, support requests are just, you know, like anything else, it's like a feature request or a bug request. You got to, you know, look at it, figure out what, what they're actually wanting, what, what's going on, give them an estimate and then let them prioritize it wherever they want. Yeah. Most of my stuff is fixes. That's kind of ongoing, right? Something, I don't know, something didn't update properly or whatever. And I just deal with that ad hoc hourly. Um, I'll give them. I'll usually give them an estimate of time, but it depends if they say, hey, like on the weekend, my site is totally down. And I looked and said, oh, that's probably just a quick function. And I realized their site totally got hacked. And so I just started billing hourly to clean up as much as I could and then said, this is your go hire security because they're way cheaper than me and they do a better job because that's what they do, security specifically. Yeah, I mean, I also, I've never had a real maintenance agreement with anyone. It's just become an hourly project or, or hourly ongoing thing. And it, the priority they get depends on the nature of the work. So if there's a really serious problem, the site is down, servers crash, then obviously that becomes a super high priority. I take care of it right away. But if it's just a feature request, then they're okay with it taking a day or two. And usually I'm okay with it taking a day or two. And so I just bill them for the hours that I worked on it. And one thing that um, some people might not be aware of is you know, if you launch a project or a product or whatever, and then you have the maintenance, if you're doing the maintenance, and you're doing a good job of it. When version two of that site comes around, you're probably going to be a prime candidate to either be the lead person working on it or, you know, be in the team for it. I've had several clients where I'd launch something, I'd do the maintenance for them, and then they'd come back like, okay, we've, you know, we've got enough, you know, revenue coming in from the first version that we're ready to do the second version and work on a lot of the bigger features we had to push back. And, I think one client actually did that twice. Like it was actually like going through three different uh, big iterations and you know, it maintenance stuff's kind of hard because you're doing an hour here, hour there. And many times it's emergency or time critical, but you know, there's a pretty good payoff and it's a pretty consistent regular income with a client you've worked with. So you can kind of use that to kind of be a good baseline for your entire business. Well, even stuff that you didn't necessarily launch. I picked up an e-commerce client a few years back and they had a couple, probably a couple thousand dollars was the initial project, which was basically fixing all the dumb stuff the other developer had done. And since then I've been maintaining it and now we're moving into like a $20,000 restructuring of the whole e-commerce site like two years later. So, Wow. 
Okay, so we'll make this the last question. Uh, specialization. So a lot of us, we talk about having a tech stack we specialize in, but is anyone specialized in like a business stack? So like, you know, maybe a problem domain like social startups, insurance, accounting, uh, maybe industry, that sort of thing. I have that question too. It's part of the, was it book clients or book yourself solid, right? Specialize into an industry. I don't necessarily. Uh, I kind of specialize in e-commerce or I do specialize in e-commerce, but I don't pick an industry. Like I have a paddling store and an antique furniture store and a bunch of other ones. So they're all over. I specialize in profitable businesses. <laughs> People with money. <laughs> that, that's a good threshold to have. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I don't even have that as a, as a, <laughs> as a specialization. I mean, my, my specialization is, I, I, I guess, I like to work with, uh, the way I describe it is, nice people on interesting projects for the long term. Uh, and so I'll, I'm willing to work with people on interesting things, even if I'm not so sure, you know, even if I'm, uh, I'm not so sure how long term their business is, so long as I know that they can pay. Yeah, I filter out interesting projects and kind of say my target, which is e-commerce, more than anything else I don't. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine sort of sticking myself into a particular product type of niche being a technology person, although I might, I might not just, I might not be seeing the potential there. Yeah, I, I've seen people do that with different industries. Myself, I, I used to specialize in only red mine and chili project stuff, which basically is like the project management space. So it's across industries, but it's one specific problem domain. Uh, that was really good for me. I cut it out whatever, a year, 18 months ago, um, as of this recording. And now I'm kind of more generic, more general. I don't know. It, it, I, got, I talk about specialization, but it's really hard to specialize in the business stuff unless you come from a business background. Like if you came from Wall Street Finance and you learn programming, it's really easy for you to stay in Wall Street Finance as a programmer. And because you know the jargon, you know all that. When you're a freelancer, sometimes you kind of got to take, take who you can. And so that's why I think a lot of people specialize more on the tech stack side. Like if any business has a problem, you can come to us and, you know, we can solve that problem in this area. Um, it's also a lot easier to market for. But if, if you are doing a lot of local stuff or if you know you have like a good network established in an industry, I think if you could specialize in like a business side or an industry like that, that's the way to go. That's where you're going to make a really good name for yourself in that market. And people in those businesses tend to stick in those businesses and tend to talk to other people in those businesses. So I can see where it would be uh, very effective in terms of marketing and getting your name out. Yeah, I mean, you, you basically get like a reinforcing thing. Like every, every good project you do, everyone in that small industry sees it and they want the same thing for their business because their competitor just one up them by using you. And so they want to one up your, the, you know, their competitor. And yeah, there's not compete, you know, issues with that. But outside of that, like it's, it's, it's really nice to do, but you have to kind of have an in in it or you have to really put the time in to get into one of those. Well, I, I have a friend who, uh, is a freelancer in the graphic design space, graphic design and then sort of marketing space. And he tends to specialize with nonprofits and he seems to have done pretty well on that over the years and a large number of nonprofits you know, people also stick in that industry move between companies talk to each other move between organizations i guess talk to each other and so he's managed to scoop up quite a lot of them uh, where he lives yeah i even uh, i worked with the native american association locally and off that picked up like five or six different native american contracts for like the whole lower end of bc just off one kind of client that got me into a specific niche i could probably even 
work on specializing just with them even because there's enough. I think there's 30 bands that all have their own websites in Chilliwack only. Wow. Yeah. Why don't we move into picks and let's start with Reuven. Ooh, we can oh. put him on the spot maybe. Yeah, indeed. So I have, I guess, two picks. Nothing too exciting. Uh, number one is I've seen in the last month or so a few postings on Hacker News and elsewhere about what fonts people are using. I think even you guys might have in the last few weeks mentioned fonts. So I'm going to chime in and say that after playing with a bunch, I've been using Anonymous Pro, both uh, for my editing in Emacs and on my slides when I give presentations for displaying code. Uh, and that's actually worked pretty well. Not that anyone ever gives any uh, comments on the fonts I use on my slides, which is reasonable, but it's been easy on my eyes and easy to read. Uh, and the other thing is uh, the latest version of PostgreSQL 9.3 just came out pretty recently, and it was a pretty amazing database before, and it's even more amazing now. So uh, all of you people who have ever thought about looking at Postgres, now's a great time to look at it. So I'm, I'm going to leave my picks at that for, uh, for this week. Eric, what do you got for us? Uh, I got one today. It's a blog post called Your Number One Priority. Uh, it's pretty good and pretty important to read. Uh, really short, but it's kind of something that, you know, I think everyone, especially people who work at home or work in an office setting, really need to think about. And I'm not going to spoil what it is, but you can probably figure it out if you guessed. All right. And my picks. I've got two today. One is The Essential Advice for Developers, which is a brand new ebook out by Corey Miller, just released today. Uh, I actually got to read through some of the beta copy, as anyone who followed his blog could have by just following a link to the Google Doc uh, for his outline and, and some of the original copy. And I'm excited to read it. I just downloaded it uh, before the show, so I haven't had a chance to dig through it, but his other books were awesome. And my second one is Full Screen Mario, which is the Mario game, uh, the original, in HTML5, which is pretty awesome. That's it. Yeah, and I think what I played it for five minutes and got to like World 4 or 5-2 or something like that. Yeah, that's why we're recording late today because Eric was too busy playing Mario. da 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 da, da. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, thanks for listening. <laughs>